My name's uh, Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Collective Church. And uh, if you're new and we haven't met yet, that's okay. I'm new too. Um, in case you can't tell, I went as Pastor Isaac for Halloween this year. Uh, <laughs> wearing the exact same thing. Uh, it's funny, when I actually... Uh, Pastor uh, Lorenzo and Pastor Isaac uh, FaceTimed me uh, to let me know that uh, I had gotten the job. Um, his leading question was, do you have a black t-shirt? Um, but there's like something about the collective pastoral uniform uh, that is like black t-shirt and jeans, and I can't, I mean, it's easy, right? Um, well, anyway, that's good to see you. Uh, specifically, um, as I've come in and, and joined uh, the, the staff and the pastoral team at Collective this fall, uh, we began last week uh, where we've been looking at uh, this New Testament letter uh, that's called First Peter, uh, written by the Apostle Peter. And uh, last week we began uh, by looking at this letter and watching how uh, what the Apostle Peter desires to do in this letter is set the Christian experience, what you and me face today, and what many of the Christians that he was writing to are facing, he sets that experience uh, alongside and parallel to the experience of the Israelite exiles. Uh, we saw this from the jump, the opening of the letter, where the Apostle Peter writes a letter saying that this is to the elect exiles, those of the dispersion. He's using this exile language, setting those two things aside alongside one another, that my experience is in some way parallel and similar to the experience of these faithful Israelites generations and generations ago. Now, what this brings us to as we continue in the letters is we have to think about what it means to be an exile and the dangers of being an exile, being a resident alien, being a stranger, uh, being in a place that's uh, home but isn't really my home, being a part of an empire and a system that seems to go against everything that I am and stand for at times. You see, the danger of exile, the danger of being in this place uh, is not destruction or rejection but assimilation. As these ancient Israelites were carted off and crushed by Babylon and brought to their kingdom, the primary thing that was going on was not them necessarily needing to be afraid of destruction or some kind of rejection in the culture. The great danger for these faithful Israelites was an assimilation into the Babylonian worldview, the Babylonian way of being. And what would happen over the course of this, this assimilation would be that over the course of their years live in Babylon, that uh, their sense of their story, of who they were, of, of what will happen, of what has happened, and what's currently happening would, would, be fade, would fade away into the distance, and they would kind of just take on the identity of being, I'm Babylonian. Losing track of everything that would have been true about them for generations, about their grandparents and their grandparents. What was actually true about them would kind of fade away and they would be okay to take on the identity and the lifestyle of a Babylonian. And you see, the, the danger was not just that this would happen, but this was what this empire of Babylon was actively working towards. You see, rebellion is never good news for people that are in power. And so moving towards having them to, uh, to resist them and, or to destroy them or to reject them, uh, the danger was in bringing all these Israelites that, you know, we could get a revolt on our hands. And so the kings of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, what they connived and thought through was the way that we can help get these Israelites in and get them to submit is not by the edge of the sword, but by inviting them into uh, Babylonian citizenship. Getting to enjoy Babylonian food, Babylonian uh, wine, Babylonian clothes, even giving them Babylonian names and Babylonian jobs. See, for some of us, as we read the Old Testament story, we, we can tend to think that these Israelites were carted off by Babylon to become slaves. But they were actually brought in and, and made as citizens. 
This idea being that over the course of time, their sense of what will happen, what's happening, and who am I, what's going on right now, where do I come from, that that would fade away in the distance. You see, it's not as explicit as a forced renouncement at the edge of the sword of, you know, you you have to turn from God and turn from the Israelite ways, uh, but it gets the same effect at the end of the day. I saw an example of this in, in all places, uh, in a casino in Reno. Uh, for those of you that, that don't know, we just uh, moved here from uh, the Reno, Nevada, where we lived for the past five years. And so uh, every now and then, over the course of the year, we would go to see uh, shows. That, that was kind of, those were the venues. Um, they had the money and the space, so that's where, if you went to see a concert, you'd, you'd go to one of the casinos in town. And so I remember going to one of the shows that a friend of ours was playing, and as I walked in, you had to go through the game floor where they've got all the slot machines and everything going on. And I just, I saw this one older woman like in this one spot, just sitting there, pulling the slot machine, cigarette hanging out of her mouth, and just kind of like walking and just like noticed her and then kept walking. Went show two and a half hours long, and I'm on my way back out to the car to go home, and she's still sitting right there. Like as immovable as like the fake plants that they have around the casino. She's in the same spot, probably not the same cigarette, but in the same side of her lip there, pulling at the same slot machine. And I was walking with my friend Mike, and I was like, how does this happen? Like how does this sort of thing lock in where they become, to use this language, assimilated into this casino? They become almost like part of the casino. And, and he talked through, and he pointed out things as we were walking through the floor. He said, do you see any clocks anywhere in the room? I was like, no, there's no clocks. What about windows? No, no, no windows. And he's like, yeah, they, they, no sense of time. Like you lose track of time when you don't have windows and stuff. And he said, he pointed out uh, that uh, as you walk through that there's a layout. He said, if you try to get out of the game floor without knowing exactly where to go, you'll get lost and it'll take you a while. The whole hope is that as you're trying to get out, you end up getting stuck by that slot machine looks pretty cool. Let's jump on that one. Or, or this table over here looks like this is hot. Let's jump in on this one. And so there's all of these ways that casinos have uh, developed ways to keep you in the game floor as long as possible, right? Pump, there's, there's rumors that they pump uh, higher levels of oxygen into the room that keeps you stimulated. Um, that hasn't been proven, but what has been proven is uh, slightly uh, scented air uh, with citrus. Just light enough that you don't notice it, but it's enough that it kicks your brain up. I mean, you've got free drinks that are coming through. You've got even as you walk in, uh, these pictures of, you know, Hank from Des Moines, you know, and he's got the, the, with the big check or whatever. And, and that's not just an advertisement. It's a story for you to take on about yourself. That could be me. You know, you got Hank from Des Moines and Patricia from Sacramento or whatever. And you're looking at these people and you're, you're going, this could be me. It's a story that you're entering into of what will happen. And then as you're sitting down and you're thinking through what is currently happening here, not only are you hearing the slight rings of people winning, but they even have machines that are posted that every now and then, with no one playing them, they will chime up like there's a winner. The whole idea is you on the other side of the game room, all you hear is someone is winning right now. Oh, maybe what's happening? I'm so close. Someone else got it. I'm going to be right there. And then even after you finally leave, if that ever happens, you walk out and you see the picture of Hank again, you know, and, and you go, maybe next time right? It's not as explicit as highway robbery, but it's the same effect, right? This slow assimilation, this is a, a way of, of not robbing you, but, but getting you so situated and, and wired into what's going on that you lose track of who you are, of what's going to happen, and what's happening, and what has happened, who you are, your identity falls apart. You could argue that Ikea does the same thing. <laughs> That's a sermon for another time, though. Uh, it's amazing there uh, to get lost. Um, but it's the same thing. I mean, you walk in and you've got pictures of people that are all comfy on the new, you know, 
whatever Swedish name they use for some couch. Uh, and you're like, that's me. If I buy that couch, uh, I'll be able to actually rest and my toddlers will leave me alone. Uh, if it doesn't happen. Or if I buy that dining room table, like I'll finally have a date. Like they'll come over and have dinner as if that works that way. Now, I say all this to say is for those of us that are, that are Christians here and receiving Peter's letter before we, we get into the text today, uh, we have the same danger right in front of us. Uh, that we are operating and living within, like we looked at last week, modern Babylon. We are operating and living and working and contributing in a part of this kind of uh, global casino, this cosmic Ikea, uh, that it's very easy for us to get lost in. Like, I, that's, it's the same with like Target. Unless I, even when I know exactly what I need from Target, I'm like, I'm going in to get this one thing. What always happens? $200 later. I'm like, where did that go? And they have like all these things that I come home with and we, don't, we didn't need them. Uh, the same thing can happen in our lives where, uh, honestly, most of us are not worried about walking into work tomorrow and, you know, there's somebody there with a gun or a sword that's like, renounce the Christian faith. And you're like, okay. And you're like, none of us are worried about this. But the danger of being in exile, the danger of what we're living in is not necessarily rejection or destruction. It's over the course of our lives, slowly assimilating into the rhythms and way of life of Babylon. And we don't even realize what's going on. This is the great danger. And so what Peter wants to do is he wants to uh, call us out from the way of assimilation into false stories that lead to uh, isolation and anger and outrage and jealousy and enslavement to work and consumerism and sexual brokenness and greed and addiction to substances and devices. He wants to go after that, but he doesn't go after that by just saying, don't do those things or be aware of those things. What Peter's going to do is he's actually going to, um, well, he's going to do exactly what the prophets did uh, for Israel is when the Israelites were in exile, is they would uh, speak over them what's, uh, what will happen, what's happening, and what has happened, pointing to the day that what will happen, there's going to be a return from exile. God is going to bring back his people. What's currently happening is you guys are living a life as resident eg exiles. You guys are not citizens as much as you may feel that way. And by pointing to what has happened, the prophets would point back to God saving his people from their slavery to Egypt as a, a trigger and a memory that then helped them look forward into the future. This is what the prophets did, and that's what Peter does exactly in, in the text that we're going to look at today. He's reminding us of the story of what will happen, what's happening, and what happened, the salvation story. He's going to take us through that. Sound good? So why don't we uh, look in First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, and we're going to read all the way through verse 12. And then we'll kind of divide this up in a couple little sections today. And so Bibles, we have some loners in the back, but we'll also be on the slides uh, behind me. And so let's look and let's read, uh, beginning in verse 3, where Peter opens the body of his letter by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with the joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, 
and doing so, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that is to be yours, that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving, that they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you. In these things that have now been announced to you by those who preach the gospel, the good news, the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, like I said, what what Peter is introducing us uh, into is this kind of um, the salvation story, the past, present, and future dynamic of what's going on within that. Because as we walk through the casino, the Ikea, the the world, uh, it is these three dynamics that we can uh, miss out on, these parts of the story, the the what will happen, what's currently happening, and what has happened. And so as you look over the text, you'll see that um, the whole passage is about salvation. Three times you might have caught him using this word salvation, and repeatedly he refers to salvation using language like God's uh, mercy or this good news, but the whole thing is about salvation. Now, before we get into that and get into the verses, we have to zoom out and talk about salvation because it's a word that, um, it's, it's, a, it's a Bible word, it's a church word, which means we read it and we're like, eh, we move on, Right? Uh, that, that's what I do oftentimes. And so salvation being a, a, a Bible word, uh, it's worth stopping and just reminding ourselves. So in the New Testament uh, that was written in Greek, salvation, uh, it's this Greek word soteria, which is rooted in language of uh, healing. Like every single time in the Gospels where Jesus walks around and he, says that he healed them, it's the same word for, for saving or salvation. It's a healing work that he's doing. It's even, you know, when we talk about uh, you, you, you get an ointment or a salve, right, spelled, it's, it's the root of salvation. And so salvation, when we talk about this will happen, is happening, and already happened, we're talking about this healing work that God is doing in his world, a delivering work, a, a saving work. So to summarize uh, salvation, you could put it this way. Salvation is God's healing and rescue of humanity and creation as well, from sin, evil, and death. The redemption and renewal of creation and of human beings within that into a newly embodied world of which the present, good and beautiful, but sick and broken world is simply a foretaste. This is what we talk about when we talk about the past, present, and future realities of salvation. And so what Peter is showing us is that this salvation, this healing work, as we've just read, is something that is going to happen. It's something that's currently happening. It's something that uh, will happen in the future. It's already and not yet. And so this past, present, and future structure, uh, well, it invites us, for those of us here, that you are a Christian, follower of Jesus. The invitation is, is for you, like me this week, to just notice uh, that, that my walk with Jesus and my faith, it tends to go messy when I'm missing one of these three things, when I've forgotten one of these dynamics, the will happen, the happening, or the has happened realities of salvation. When one of those gets set on the side, that's when I, I begin act, acting and operating and thinking in ways that, that aren't in line with who Jesus is making me into. And so as we read over that, just to receive and consider where, what part of the story am I prone to forget or have I forgotten? For those of you that are here today and you're visitors with us, you don't identify as a Christian, and for some reason you're joining us, uh, welcome. Uh, as you join us today in looking at the letter of 1 Peter, this is just an invitation for you to just take in the, the time to chew on what story you're living into. What, what, what has been the operating narrative behind your life? And, and how's that working for you? Um, that's, that's what I'd invite you to do. Now, 
With that being said, let's look at those first three verses uh, and let's look at the future of the story. He begins with the future. Now, what he opens with in these first couple of verses, three through five, is talking about how salvation will happen. Uh, Notice that he opens with this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, he opens with worship. He opens with praise. He's praising uh, God. In fact, this entire uh, page, I think it it goes all the way until, I think, chapter two. Uh, In the Greek that he's writing in, it's all one giant run-on sentence. So like F in grammar, A plus in theology, uh, is is what's going on here. It's all one giant run-on sentence where the the subject verb of the sentence, some of you guys are like, I didn't want to go to school today. He goes, the, the subject verb of the sentence is this blessed be, the subject noun is God. And then everything else is him just like throwing spaghetti at the wall and watching it stick. I'm like, and this, and this, by the way, he throws this whole thing together. And so bad grammar, great theology. So he begins by blessing and praising God. But notice this isn't just any God, uh, some spiritual notion of some God out there or the universe. For him, the God that's worth praising is the God who's revealed himself through Jesus Christ, his son. But why is Peter praising this God that's revealed himself through Jesus? Because what he writes, according to the foreknowledge, according to the foreknowledge, um, no, that's, that's, that was last week. Um, he says, according to his great mercy, he's done what? He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's caused us to be born again. This strange language of new birth, of a uh, new life, specifically as he gets into this new hope with a new future. And he describes this new life with a new future, this new birth, by uh, layering three words on top of each other. And so we might miss it in English, but you can see behind me uh, that he does this through these specific, this preposition, this ice is the Greek word, Um, not what goes in your water, um, but a preposition uh, to move from one idea to the next. And so he builds these three uh, little ice, these little prepositional phrases to talk about the different dynamics behind what we have been saved into. And it's all future tense. He says we've been saved into a living hope. He says we've been saved into an inheritance. And then uh, in the following verses, uh, they translate it as for, um, but it's it's the same word, into a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of that is future. Do you see what's going on here? Salvation will happen. He's not talking present. He's not talking past. He's setting his eyes on a future healing work that God wants to do in the world. And what he argues is that all of this will happen, this hope, this future inheritance, this salvation at the revealing, that this is the future that you and I have been born again into. The new life that you have is one that's living. It's one that's imperishable. It cannot perish. It's undefiled. It cannot be defiled. It's unfading. It's never gonna, there is a light that never goes out. It is unfading. And it's ready to be revealed in the last time. And what's crazy about this is all of this future hope for Peter is writing on what? If you go back to three, what is it? Born again to this living hope, this inheritance, this salvation through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So for Peter, everything is writing on your future hope. The future hope of Christians is writing not on this being an okay way to live, but on a embodied physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. This whole hope system is riding on Easter Sunday, not just being like a day where the bunny brings candy, but that something legitimately happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, a friend of Peter's, well, they were friends, uh, they got in fights though, because they were really good friends. Um, you'll see uh, 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul writes, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, there it is, hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. 
Paul writes one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, where he makes the argument that apart from some physical resurrection, some embodied legitimate thing that happened in real time and real space 2,000 years ago where a grave was left empty, apart from that happening, that this living hope thing, this inheritance, this salvation thing is moot. It's not there at all. It's a waste of your time. This is a bad place to be on a Sunday if something didn't happen 2,000 years ago. But because it has, we have hope in this life that the resurrected king has as well, an inheritance. Like the, all of this language is something that is safe with Jesus, coming with his revelation. It's because of his resurrection that we can receive that. And the thing is, is that you and I need to be reminded of what will happen in the future, of what will, salvation, that it will happen. We need to be reminded of this, specifically as exiles, as we're walking through the, the cosmic Ikea or the casino, we're walking through Babylon, is that each day we have alternative salvation stories advertised to us by Babylon. Different alternatives of what our hope, our future, our, our, our focus and vision should be on where we get a story of salvation or hope coming through consumerism, and so we go to Ikea, careerism, and so we never see our family or friends because we work, of political activism, and we actually care more about politics than what we're actually doing in our own neighborhood, about radical individualism, about perfect parenting, your education, your sexuality, financial uh, security, your health. Each and every one of these things um, are on the billboards of our lives that whether you're scrolling through your phone or you're driving down the road, billboards and statements and pictures, they are stories of Hank in Des Moines where maybe I can be like him. And so we sit at the slot machine of working hours that we never should have worked, of getting more education than we need, of saving up more money than we actually need to, of, 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 of all of the, uh, what, name your thing. It's a slot machine of maybe I'll be like Hank when I grow up. Each and every one of these, however, are not living hopes. Is what Paul, by Peter saying there is a living hope, he argues that, that everything else outside of this resurrection of Jesus Christ is in fact a dead hope. It's not imperishable, but perishable. It's fading. It's defiled. It's uh, flammable. The thing is, is that it sets before you this vision where you're always one promotion away from finally being happy. You're always uh, one, one sleep like night with your toddler where they can actually sleep, that then I'll finally be happy. You're always one, one project away, one relationship away, one friendship, one party that you can host away, one Instagram, whatever it is, that you're always one step away. It is a ladder where we keep pulling on the slot machine. Maybe next time. But at the end of the day, and the sad reality is that for many people, it takes their death for this to finally be a realization. Is hope finally dies sooner or later? Uh, Father John Misty, uh, who's one of my favorite musicians, uh, he wrote uh, Fun Times in Babylon. It's his first album, uh, Fear Fun. Very, very good. Uh, his opening track is called Fun Times in Babylon. And in it, he opens, uh, I almost sang it. Uh, I would not have been good. <clears throat> he sings uh, Fun Times in Babylon. That's what I'm counting on. And then he uses all of this Father John Misty crazy apocalyptic language to talk about his death or the end of the world. And so he moves on from because he's going to die, because the end of the world's coming, he sings, I would like to abuse my lungs, smoke everything in sight with every girl I've ever loved, ride around the wreckage on a horse knee-deep in blood. Look out, Hollywood, here I come. Um, this, this, this is Father John Misty's personification of when we get to the end of the false hopes that, that culture hands out for us. As we get to this kind of nihilism, which is like, I just want to smoke everything around me, hang out with all the girls I've ever known, 
If you can figure out the horse running around in the blood, let me know, because it's crazy. And then, of course, where is Babylon for him? <laughs> Hollywood, <laughs> right down the street. Um, and so if, if you don't agree with me saying uh, L.A. is Babylon, Father John Misty, uh, he agrees with me. Now, here's the thing. The way of Jesus is not this nihilistic dead hope of just, I guess I'll have fun times in Babylon until the end of the world, but actually a way that Jesus invites you and I into. One uh, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, where he says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal uh, and brush fires cannot burn down. Uh, Jesus invites us into a way of life that is not just living fun times in Babylon, but actually actively contributing and setting our hope and focus on the reality that his resurrection makes ground for, that there is something going on beyond just what happens here in Babylon. And so for those of us as exiles, we need a reminder that salvation is a future tense. It will happen. We need some future we set our eyes towards. And like I just said, the vision given to us by the world is not lasting. There's some of you here that don't identify as a Christian, but you're here because the vision given to you by Babylon, by LA, by your parents, by yourself, you finally realize you're tired of pulling at the slot machine. You've been lost in Ikea for too long and you're like, you know what? I'm done. I don't want the couch. And so I guess I'll look for some other story or narrative. And it's brought you here. The good news of what's going on within Christianity is because of not just some good feeling that we have or some good teaching of Jesus, but through what happened on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago is that there actually is a kingdom of heaven that's worth contributing to and receiving even in the midst of living in Babylon. Some of us have an ache for hope, for something that truly is living, imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. And some of you, maybe you even identify, maybe you've been following for Jesus sometime, but you've missed out on this part of the story, that you have an inheritance coming to you, a hope that is alive, something that's ready to be revealed at the end of time, and you've forgotten this hope. And, and the life that you live at this point is just so hard to follow Jesus because you don't have any focus on where Jesus is actually taking things. One of my uh, professors from school, he, in, in teaching this passage, talked about how uh, hell begins where hope ends. Hell begins where hope ends. And for some of you, you've been trying to do the Jesus thing, but you feel like your life is hell. That might be partially your circumstances. We're going to get to that in a minute. But a hope that Jesus is moving reality in some direction towards healing, towards salvation, in fact, is Uh, where we can find a deep sense of joy while we go through the present tense. And that's exactly where he moves next in detailing how salvation uh, is happening. And so let's continue. Look with me in verses six uh, through nine, where he says in this, talking about the word salvation, our word of the day, in salvation you rejoice. In this salvation, you now presently, present tense, you are rejoicing in this salvation now. But what does that look like, this rejoicing in salvation, receiving it? Well, like we followed the ice, um, again, you can divide these little three verses into his main thought by just following the those. Uh, there's two those there. Um, there's one though that I didn't highlight because it's not the same thing. Um, and, uh, and then there's another one uh, in verse uh, nine that you'll see in a minute. But if you follow the those, what you find is he, he says salvation happening, salvation in the present tense, it looks like rejoicing though you grieve. Loving, though we have not seen him, and believing, though 
uh, we have not now seen him. He intentionally builds salvation happening in the present tense through these paradoxical opposites. Rejoice in grief. Do not know, they do not go hand in hand. Love and like, I don't know who I'm like, I don't see who I'm loving. That doesn't seem to go hand in hand. Believing or trusting and, and giving allegiance to someone that I don't see doesn't seem to go hand in hand. And so what he's developing here is, well, let's, we'll go through each of the three here. Well, first, for those of us that are Christians, that are exiles, that we are operating with salvation happening in the present tense, we rejoice and grieve at the same time. We grieve because of the pain that's lived in life in a broken world. Circumstances that test and try our faith. And I mean, it happens in, in all over the place in our lives that some of you are in the middle of one of these things right now where the pain of this is so intense that for you, the temptation is just to, to step away from it all. Or maybe that you see that somehow this, this Jesus guy that you've been following, that he's the problem here. What Peter invites you into is, is not just saying that the way of salvation happening is one of grief, but one of rejoicing at the same time, where, where uh, like James uh, says, that we count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when we endure trials of many kinds. Why? Because as Peter writes and James writes and Paul, it's all throughout the New Testament, it's through these grievous, painful moments that our faith is proven as genuine, as legitimate. And so even in the midst of as painful as this is, at the very least, what I can see is the fact that I'm holding and clinging on to Jesus in the midst of this brings some sort of joy for me because I know where he's taking history because I have a good sense of salvation will happen. And what he develops is that this, this sort of what comes out of that sort of faith of clinging to Jesus in the midst of grief and pain and suffering and trials is that what comes out of that is this reward, this inheritance almost to pick up on that language that's more valuable than gold that will not perish. Again, there's that same language that he's talking about. And even more, he talks about that we'll receive glory and praise and honor. Like that sounds, I mean, I don't know, whatever system of like faith maybe or, or lack of you grew up in, that sounds blasphemous to me. Peter says faithful Christians are going to receive glory and honor and praise from God when Jesus returns. And so, man, I'm like clinging on, like, God, like, come on. That is an insane thing that, that Peter is trying to set your hope around in the midst of those of us that are grieving and going through hard trials. Is that somehow by clinging on to Jesus, this genuine faith that's happening right now and right here, somehow is moving in the direction of what Jesus is going to do. So he talks about that, but he also moves that just like um, grief is the grounds, the paradoxical soil for joy to grow out of, he talks about how the lack of Jesus' Jesus' physical absence right now, as he is in heaven with the Father, is that the lack of Jesus' physical absence is the grounds through which our love and our belief or trust, that this, this is where this grows out of. That our trust and faith grow not in, in seeing him right now, but out of his physical absence. I remember my wife Erin and I were um, long distance um, for about a year and a half when we started, no, a year, just a year, year and a half? How long are we long distance? I didn't mean to put you on the spot. A year, thank you. Uh, she's like, ah, 40 years. Um, uh, for a year, we, um, we were long distance. Um, and so uh, this is like just when FaceTime, like it came out like right when we were dating. Um, and that was like a game changer. Um, and so we would, you know, talk and we, would, we were connected, but it was like long distance. There wasn't any date night. There wasn't any like, hey, you want to go hang out with friends? It was just like, what are you up to today? And like us talking over this. I remember my roommate, Lee, at the time, he would always kind of talk about after I'd get done talking to Aaron, he's like, man, you must really, really like her uh, because I don't know how I could do that. 
to love and trust and, and get to know with someone that is like physically absent and it's a long distance relationship. There, there must be something genuine about the love that you have for this girl. And I was like, totally, uh, I'm gonna marry her. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in, in the same way that what Peter is getting at is that uh, though, because Christ is presently on the throne, uh, ruling and reigning through his spirit and one day returning uh, to heal our world, we currently have a long distance relationship with him. Uh, something a little bit better than, than FaceTime, like we have the Holy Spirit, right, that's working within us. Um, but, but our love and faithfulness, like in a long distance relationship, will in the future result in, in joy and love and belief becoming sight, all that awesome stuff. There's a future tense reality behind the long distance. But what Peter adds to it, though, is that there's also a present tense joy now that can be experienced. This inexpressible joy, this glory-filled joy that he talks about is not future tense here. He's not talking about some future joy that's inexpressible. Right now, relationship with Jesus is experienced as a joy that is inexpressible. You can't put, it's like the, the, the language behind it is this, there's no words. It's like wordless, a wordless joy. When people ask you, where's this joy coming from? You're like, uh, him? I don't know. And one that's filled with glory, glory being so often um, pointing to God's presence, that we have a joy that's like filled with God's presence. And honestly, if I'm really, really honest, out of the three realities, past, present, future, happened, will happen, happening, uh, this is the one that's like, honestly, the hardest for me to, to hold on to and remember throughout the week. Like, it's easy for me to, like, think back and, like, all of the Bible and, and history facts behind the resurrection, and, and I really, like, you know, life is, is so hard at times that I can look forward to Jesus doing something in the future, salvation being there. But the fact that healing and deliverance and redemption is something that I can experience today, that's the one that's the easiest for me to forget. And because it's the easiest one for me to forget, it's the easiest one that Babylon's pictures of happiness in an Ikea couch or happiness in like whatever, these clothes or this new show, like for some reason, like Disney Plus is coming out and I think that the Mandalorian is finally gonna make me happy. Um, and it probably will, uh, but not happy enough. Um, and, uh, and, and so what's so often is, is whatever part of the story we forget is that's when, that's when Babylon's stories, the stories of the world look most attractive. It's, it's a missing puzzle piece that we can set in place. And so because I set salvation as being past and future tense, that when I don't see what God's doing right here and right now in my grief, in my doubt, in my suffering and pain, then it's easy for me to see my suffering and my pain and my doubt as actually the things that make the rest of it null. And so the call is to see that salvation is happening right now. The faith, the everyday steps through pain and through good and bad, following Jesus, being committed to his community, that these sorts of things are salvation happening right here and right now. And so even if we have, though, present joy and we have uh, some future hope, without some past premise for these things, it's a delusion. There are a lot of really nice cults out there that have some vision for the future and they make people really happy right now, but they're not grounded in any historical reality, right? Like we can, I mean, we're in LA, like you guys make a new cult every week. We can, we can find one that, that exemplifies this. And what, what Paul goes to, and again, 1 Corinthians 15, is that if there's no past premise for what we believe, then your faith is in vain. Your present joy is a delusion and your future hope is it's, you should be pitied that you lived your life with hope of that. There must be some sense of a past tense premise for our salvation. There must be something about the fact that salvation has happened for the rest of this all to be coherent. 
And that's where he ends our passage. So look with me in verses 9 through 10. Or not 9 through 10, we're already there. 10 through 12. Uh, 10 through 12, where Peter ends this passage by uh, replanting our uh, salvation reality roots deep down in the, the reality that salvation happened. He's reminding us of God's salvation plan. Specifically, he's writing to a predominantly uh, Jewish Christian congregation that for them, their big fear was that we're following this Jesus guy as Messiah now, um, and, and we, we're a part of some crazy cult. We've left the faith of our forefathers and what we have been a part of for years so that we could go after this Jesus thing. And I'm, I'm terrified that I'm doing the wrong thing. I've gone after a, a, a damnable offense by going after this false prophet who claims to be one with God. And so what Paul or Peter does here is he brings together this story to remind them that your belief, your reality, your faith as as Jewish Christians is not some departure, but is in fact the fulfillment of what the prophets have been talking about all along. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what type of, what was the Holy Spirit within them bringing out of them? He talks about how that this is continued now in those that are preaching. When the, he just, he's bringing everything together. What you guys heard from the preachers was, was brought out by the same Holy Spirit that was prophesying through the prophets in the Old Testament to those faithful exiles. And so the whole thing is connected. This is not some departure from the Jewish faith. This is the fulfillment of what it's always been about. And now the weird thing for us is, is many of us in here, we're, we're non-Jewish Christians, we're Gentiles, is for us, we, we don't necessarily think like that, but for us, many of us, we can be tempted to think that Christianity is, is some, maybe not departure from the Jewish faith, but some weird religion, some weird crutch for the masses, some weird way that we're you know, enslaving uh, people groups so that we can take over, whatever, whatever you know, thing, you've, conspiracy you've heard out there about Christianity. Peter pushes against our understanding of that, and he says, no, go back to the ancient story of the Old Testament, the story of Israel. How God, for generations, through all these sorts of people, has been prophesying and pointing to the fact that he's going to do something about his broken world. And then compare that with the preachers that you've heard today, guys like me that won't shut up about the fact that God is going to heal the world, and the whole thing is connected. And then he even does this like weird line, and he's like, the, he ends it with these angels long to look into. It's like this awesome, crazy, like, Peter, what are you smoking right now? Um, well, what he says here is, is he gets into this reality that he goes, you don't understand the privilege that you have to be in this moment of what God is doing in the world. You, what the prophets were waiting for and the angels have been longing to look into, you guys get to experience and know about the way that God has saved the world. And how is that? Look what he says in verse 11. How is God saving the world? In verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, that's his way of talking about the Holy Spirit in partnership with Christ, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. If you guys were here when I guest uh, preached a couple weeks ago, guest taught, um, I pointed out that the way that Jesus talked about his story, the story of the gospel, the good news of God saving the world, it was a V-shaped story of this anointed Messiah king Christ, it's not his last name, it's a title, who would go into suffering and be raised to glory. And so here Peter, as a good disciple, is telling the same V-shaped story of the gospel, of the anointed Messiah King, the Christ, who would go into sufferings and would go into subsequent glories. Peter is telling the story that Jesus is that saving, healing, delivering, anointed King and Son of God, who entered into sufferings, plural, 
through his incarnate life, living as a human being, suffering the daily tests and trials that we face, stubbing his toes, needing to go to the restroom, but being in a public place and not knowing where to go, all of the sufferings that we have gone through, that you, okay, that's just me. Don't make me feel that way right now, that you haven't been somewhere. You're like, I really have to go and you can't find the bathroom. Jesus has gone through, not to downplay the sufferings that Jesus has gone through, but the full human experience. The sufferings that you've gone through, everything from stubbed toes to feeling betrayed by friends, Jesus knew and experienced those sufferings. And in his cross, his death, his trial, everything that was going on was him bearing and carrying the sufferings, the pain that you and I have, have, have the suffering we've done to others and the suffering that we've, we've received on ourselves. Jesus carried it all. He went into the sufferings of humanity so that he might be raised to glory and might raise us to glory. And like sufferings is plural, glories is plural. He's, he's encapturing this whole movement of Jesus, his resurrection, Easter Sunday being real, his ascension to the right hand of God, his current reign and sending the spirit to work through his church and in the future glories of his revelation, his return, the judgment of evil, his, his healing of a broken world and resurrection of his people. This is the whole thing that Peter says, what, what the salvation story is all built around is this story. Even if you go back, remember, he talked about we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, that it's happened. And that we're being faithful to him right now with this genuine faith that will be uh, honored and gloried and praised when at the future tense, his revelation. Peter brings in that we need this whole story to make it through any day as a Christian. That salvation will happen, it's happening and happened. And so in the midst of the alternative stories that we go through in our lives, we continue to return to this true story where healing and deliverance actually take place. One that will happen at Jesus' return, one that is presently happening through those of us who trust, love, and believe in him, and it has happened through his suffering and subsequent glories. The danger in forgetting this is not just hopelessness if we lose some future vision or joylessness if we miss out on some present version, but if we miss out on the past version of salvation that it's happened, we, we get purposeless. We lose the purpose for our lives and why we're here. It's the past tense salvation of reality happened that gives us purpose for our lives and assimilation happens when we forget any part of this story. That it's kind of this, this foothold that the casino, that Ikea can get in there and tell some alternative story. Bobette Buster, I don't know if any of you have heard of her. She has an incredible name. Um, she talks about, she um, is a consultant for um, Disney and Pixar and all these different companies about stories. And she has this powerful quote that um, narrative is our culture's currency. Uh, she says, he who tells the best story wins. Um, Peter here is trying to bring us back, not just to the best story, but the true story. And we have to like bury this so deep in our minds. This is why we need to worship on a regular basis and be with other Christians is remind ourselves of this story because he who tells the best story or you could say is the loudest story wins. And so we have to continually remind ourselves of this if we want any hope in being a faithful exile and walking this way. And so the way of the exile, like I said, in all of this is that we live our lives and as we see flash before us each day these alternative salvation stories, as we find ourselves uh, pulled to the left and to the right, we can say to ourselves, salvation will happen, happening, happened. Will happen, happening, happened. Will happen, happening, happened. And we dig these realities deep inside of our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we repeat this as often as we need and we apply whatever part of the story we need today. 
as we continue to walk the way of the exile, as we wait for Jesus' return when he's going to have salvation, not just be present tense and past tense, but, but what is future tense now will be present tense then. This is what we're moving for, what we're waiting for. And so in the meantime, like I said, we repeat the story and we join the angelic audience in gazing and looking into this profound reality that the God of the universe in Jesus Christ entered into our suffering so he might raise us into his glories. Let's pray.